This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Anna is a Boston-based musician that has lived with gender incongruence her whole life. After trying medical transition, she decided to move away from this treatment approach for her condition, even after seeing some benefits. Regardless of her approach moving forward, she seeks to reestablish a new relationship with what it means to be a female, both physiologically and socially, at this moment in her life. Anna identifies as a feminist and someone in solidarity with transsexual people. And here's our conversation with Anna. All right, welcome back to Transparency. Uh, I am Aaron Terrell, and as ever, joined by my co-host, uh, Aaron Kimberly. And uh, we've got Anna here to tell us about uh, her experience with uh, dysphoria and whatnot. So thanks for being here, Anna. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to, to talk about this stuff. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I appreciate you being here. Where we usually like to start is just kind of like at the beginning, um, you know, with you chronologically, you know, when you were young and kind of what were your feelings around gender or where did you first kind of start to realize that maybe you weren't weren't experiencing uh, girlhood like other girls? Yeah, definitely. I can I can go go way back. So my uh, my experience with gender dysphoria goes back to my childhood. Um, it's something that I, I don't remember like not having. Um, but I think, uh, when I was a child, I didn't really think of it as dysphoria initially, but it was incongruence. That's the way that I felt it. So it wasn't something that caused me, um, a lot of distress, you know, um, so for instance, I was, I presented as like the, the typical tomboy uh, in terms of my, my general appearance. Um, definitely partook in, in a, a range of general, gender neutral activities, you know, um, so, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, and really didn't feel like it was anything that I was doing was um, like, necessarily out of sync or something until maybe like around first grade first grade second grade that's when I started to to realize things uh were were getting a bit different in terms of how my body was changing and also um just like milestones that are like for instance I had like a first communion and um I was told to be put in a dress and uh, be on the side with the girls and things just started to not really make sense to me. I was like, wait a second. Well, I'm supposed to be on that side wearing that stuff. You know what I mean? So things just slowly but surely, I was starting to get a little bit confused um, in the social aspect and then uh, in like the, the physiological aspect, right? So, um, you know, hitting puberty slowly but surely and, and getting periods and stuff um I was just like oh I you know as naturally as like a, a child would be kind of surprised by by getting those things um there there was like another layer to it where I was like well aren't I supposed to be getting what, what what's happening to them like you know what I mean in terms of like looking at boys and being like I should be that should be happening to me I'm guessing you know I had this kind of internal um feeling and um I suppose that's when I would call it gender dysphoria, right? Because it started to become distressful and I didn't know how to label it um, and didn't really know how to talk about it. Um, and so, you know, life life went on um, and I, I got through high school and started to get more into like the, the more like feminine like presentation and so forth, trying that out. Um, and whatnot, and then, uh, you know, continued on to, to college and so forth. And um, in the beginning of like my college studies, I, I learned about uh, things like queer theory and I started to get an understanding of the term gender dysphoria for the first time. Like I never heard that term until like my first year of college um, from like my friends and stuff. And I was like, oh about wow. What year would that have been? What year? Yeah. Um, 
Good Lord. Um, I might have been maybe like 20, around 2018, maybe 2018. Okay. I'm, I'm 27 right now. Okay. So that was around, around that time. Um, and yeah, I was, I was really, um, surprised by the term, even though, uh, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood that was like, um, I would say very liberal. Like I grew up in Chicago and like the, the Wrigley, Wrigleyville area, Boys Town area and stuff. And there's just language I've never like heard of before. Um, and I was like, oh, let me, let me investigate this a bit further and see what this is about. Um, and although like before that I knew about um, trans people, I didn't know that they transitioned to get um, to where they were uh, in, a, in a particular way, like through like medical transition and, and whatnot and et cetera, et cetera. I didn't understand like the underlying, like certain realities uh, of it all. Um, and so I just started to like inform myself uh, and yeah, and then then I went ahead with um, going into a medical transition um, a little bit before COVID hit. So there was definitely some some gaps in in my um, my process. Okay, and what so you said you did kind of embark on on transition, but then you decided not to go through with it, or or I didn't realize you were a, a, a basically technically a detransitioner in that case. Yeah, so um, I would to some extent label myself in in that way. So okay. essentially, what, yeah, I mean it's so okay. Let me explain. I yeah. um, I did go on on hormone replacement therapy, and I did go through a name change. Um, I went by different pronouns for a while, um, both at home and and in the workplace, um, and. Yeah, I, I did that for, I think, almost like a year. That was that was as much time as I had with that. And I experienced some changes like the the, um, the deepening of the voice and, and so forth. And um, for me, the, the social transition was was not something that felt very like different for me because my general way of like dressing and so forth and going about the world always has been kind of like in, on the more androgynous side. Um, I mean, obviously there were some challenges, but um, yeah, so I, I did, you know, HRT, that's, that's what I did. And um, I, I did see some of its benefits. I also saw some of like the limitations for myself and um, just uh, noticed that there were just things where um, I just, I needed some more information as to what, what I had, you know, what, what I was experiencing, so. What information were you given at the time, if if much of any? Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. So a lot of the information that I got about uh, transition um, came from my own uh, research and, and concluding like, okay, this is something that is um, like a medical move that I really need to consider at this point in my life, considering I'm, I'm getting older. You know, and I have, I am the way that I am. You know, I, I have these feelings since I've been a child. Um, and so a lot of the information that I got, for instance, I, I would get my HRT from Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. Um, and so the information that I got there was um, that obviously I'm going to go through like physical changes, right? So I'm going to get the, the deepening of the voice, um, potential hair loss, and so on and so forth. And and whatnot and I was like yeah that that makes sense you know obviously that's what you sign up for right when you start something like this um but there's there just wasn't I felt like it was kind of like there was a consultation and then immediately um you know I got HRT like in the next appointment like not even didn't get my levels checked any sort of like hormone levels or, or whatever didn't get like my mental health evaluated uh, and I was I was a little bit surprised by all of it you know um, I was like pleasantly surprised, but also kind of like, this isn't honestly doesn't feel comprehensive at all, you know? Um, so I, I, I embarked upon that and, uh, that was essentially as much information as I got. It was just kind of really, really plain, didn't go in depth. So. 
did they ask you any questions at all or were they just like here's what information we have do you have any questions for us kind of deal yeah so they, they did ask me um like what my pronouns were they asked me um yeah they also asked me um like what my goals were with with hrt um and i told them my goal is to uh transition into being someone who is uh presenting of the opposite sex so uh, a transsexual transition and um that was about it you know and there wasn't really any kind of like um conversation you know it was just me being like this this and that and and yeah and that was that was essentially there was no such there wasn't like a thing like oh maybe you know you should look up you know we should look into like what the underlying cause is or maybe we should run some additional tests i kind of um i had an expectation that would be the the conversation that there would just be it would just be more holistic and that really wasn't it so so it sounds like it surprised you um just the, the the lack of discussion and information that happened. I mean, was part of part of your hope? Did you hope to better understand why you were experiencing what you were experiencing, or, or were you at that point were you just ready to start hormones? You know, it was it was both. I mean, I was definitely ready. Like, I was at a moment where I was like, okay, I've I've been thinking about this, researching, you know, as much as I could on on certain you know topics of transition for some time. Um, I was also kind of like, uh, I had a, I would say a moment where I really uh, bought into some narratives around um, gender dysphoria, like like pop psychology narratives that were actually, um, I think, not the most positive in their essence. And that uh, kind of put me in a position where I was like, I need to do this now, you know, mm -hmm. just cognitively. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely, I felt the need to, to do it immediately. Um, and, but likewise did want information, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like gender dysphoria after, you know, doing my, as much relatively superficial research, you know, I'm not like a scientist or anything. I'm just a person trying to understand a condition. There was just um, so much vague information um, initially that I found. It was just like, I don't know. It, it didn't feel really like helpful to me. Uh, and I just didn't know how to approach it because if, if one is like, you know, at a point where they're, you know, about to go on hormones and stuff and so forth, even like having the cognitive headspace to like research things like that can be just overwhelming, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's a it's huge burden on the individual, right? You're already struggling. And I mean, if this was any other condition, we wouldn't rely on people having to research it themselves and then determine what the correct course of action is all on their own. And, and I mean, I struggle with this as a, as a clinician, because I think what you're describing is quite common that people do seek information on their own, make a decision on their own, sometimes do take their time to think about that. Others maybe rush that decision. So by the time people show up to a clinic, they've already often have made up their mind about something and want to proceed with the hormones. And I, I got a sense as a clinician in the position of, of having, of meeting with these people, it's almost too late to provide them information. If they feel like the information they got from the internet was, was accurate and true and fits for them. And they've really hooked into that idea. It, it's almost too late then to educate them about what, what does the science actually say about these these conditions and and with the community saying that some of those explanations are in fact offensive and transphobic, even though they're evidence-based that people may have heard that as well. And then, and then, so as soon as you start to talk about what gender dysphoria is, people kind of shut down or they reject that message. And I think that's why it's so important for us to, to correct the public message and the message that's online as much as possible so that when people are trying to find that information that it that it exists somewhere yeah yeah definitely um what you just said um like there i think there is definitely like a point where trying to inform people who are like into their transition to a, a relatively strong degree and, and trying to, um, I think 
like concepts in like queer theory, like queer theory narratives um, seem to really make it hard for people to potentially get an understanding of some like underlying causes as to why they have what they have. And that doesn't make them any less like trans, you know, it doesn't make them any less valid. Uh, but I think it might be really helpful from a mental health standpoint to be like, yeah, like physiologically, I can't turn into a male. You know what I mean? And just being conscientious. I think that's like a really big part of improving trans healthcare is being like, yeah, this is like what we are. These are the possibilities. These are, you know, what the reasonings as to why um, certain people get to a certain age and then they transition, uh, which there's various reasons. Uh, and then just kind of like going from there. But right now I feel like transition in our society, when, when people just kind of look at it from a superficial level, it's really mythologized, mm -hmm. you know, even for people who have, you know, gender incongruence, gender dysphoria. I know from my own um, experience, you know, I really bought into um, just like a lot of slogans, you know, and I was like, yeah, I, I definitely, because for, you know, it's, if, if you have gender incongruence, it's like hearing these things, it's like, um, like a slogan, like trans men are men, trans women are women. Like, I think that is inherently transphobic, that slogan. Um, and I know some people might challenge me on that idea, but I think there's something about it where it's like, it's trying to erase um, what transition really is, you know, and the, the humanity of trans people as trans people, if you see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, uh, that was something that was, that I've encountered and just kind of like being like, okay, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 there's, there's so much, so much to it all. So I'm going to start rambling. But. Yeah, there's there's sort of for a long time have been these these two warring positions. I mean, the the trans activists insisting, you know, that literal sex change is possible, or that we should at least think of it that way, and then the radical feminists who really object to even the concept of gender dysphoria or incongruence because they say, well, no, I mean, a woman can be more masculine, and that's still a woman and therefore they don't like that terminology incongruence that so you're not no woman is more like a man is how they would rationalize and i feel like both of those positions really erase and undermine what we're actually experiencing i mean a sense of incongruence is why so much many of us are gender non-conforming it's not i mean yes i know that it is the natural variation of your own sex you know in those cases but it, it it's really not understanding that our desire to be or our mistake in thinking we are the opposite sex is the whole point. Like that's, that's what incongruence is. And so I think both, both of those positions, I think er erase the reality of our experience. And I would prefer to keep both of them out of our, out of our understanding of what gender dysphoria is and keep it evidence-based. Yeah. You know, they're, they're both pretty extreme um, approaches. Right. And, and it's, it kind of, um, yeah, definitely. I, I I agree with you on that. Like keeping that stuff out is, is super important uh, because the like just when people get too political and then it kind of meddles with the the science that we're trying to to refine, you know, or trying to just get a more comprehensive understanding of. Um, yeah, then you know everybody loses, right? Like both trans people and, and non trans people. Mm -hmm. so, so without much help to make sense sorry sorry go ahead <laughs> you're good so speaking of those two uh like the kind of the two they're almost two contradictory um understandings of of transness for lack of a better word um that you were kind of touching on with where we got that the queer theory framework right and then i think what you were alluding to was kind of like the born in the wrong body framework and do you do you recall which one of those like made more sense to you that you latched onto or I know for many of us it's kind of like whichever one makes us feel better given the in the given moment you know whichever is going to be the best answer to the to the to the current question um but yeah I'm curious what your kind of position on on those two 
opposing forces was. Yeah, as in like, do you mean like what I gravitated to yeah. most? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the, the born in the wrong body um, narrative, definitely. Okay. Definitely. I, I internalized that on a very strong level um, at a certain point when I was like transitioning. Um, and yeah, I think that's a very damaging narrative for trans people. Because <laughs> I also, I, I dated, you know, I have, uh, I dated someone who was trans at the time, a trans woman, and um, I I felt that that narrative was also internalized by this person and had, you know, have friends who are trans and, and that gets internalized uh, by some people in a certain way. And it's, it's terrible. You know, I think it's a, it's a terrible narrative and I, and I don't think it's true. Yeah, there's no evidence that it's true. Um... I mean, Cantor wrote, James Cantor wrote a, a paper sort of compiling some of the MRI evidence. And he said, you know, and he wasn't saying that, that it's ever true, but he said, if there was a case to be made for a kind of like, like a brain intersex condition or a brain sh trending towards the opposite sex, he said it would only exist in the homosexual cohort. I mean, that's, that's been established in literature that we can see not necessarily on an individual level, but on a group level, we can see sexual orientation in the brain and that gay men's brains tend to trend towards female and and some gay women's brains trend towards masculine, but that that hasn't been the case in the, the heterosexuals who transition. So it, it is a falsehood, but I mean, there's a, as you discovered, there's a lack of accurate information available online. So the only two two narratives that are really being presented to people with gender dysphoria is either the queer theory framework or the gender identity framework of born in the wrong body. There's really no alternative. And when the only um, times that they ever maybe hear something like autogonophilia, um, it's either used, it's used as a slur by some people as this is just an awful thing. And if you have this, you're disgusting um, or a complete, rejection of the concept as though it's been completely debunked and those so that those are the only two ways that, that that concept tends to be presented to the public so who would want to identify into that or who would even entertain the thought that maybe that's what's going on for them and that's that's really a shame um because i think we all benefit from better understanding what's going on for us and and what motivates us and allowing that to factor into our decision making about how we want to manage it and move forward yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, there definitely is some sort of taboo with um, concepts like um, autogynephilia, autoandrophilia, and, and so forth. Um, and I think, honestly, a lot of it comes down to is just like the way that the words ring. <laughs> they, they really kind of sound similar to um, other paraphilias and just have like a weird vibe to them, honestly. Um, and Right. A lot of the, the research that exists is kind of like shamey in the way that it's written. I don't know from what I've read. Um, but yeah, it's definitely important. And, um, you know, I've even I've been in a context um, a few years back where I did like um, there was like a mental health, like peer support group for all people who are like uh, trans or like gender nonconforming and so forth. And there was no discussion about these concepts like at all you know and um just looking back now being like wow there are these like clinical settings that that you know mental health settings that just don't maybe are not even aware of these conditions or don't even know how to like present these possibilities to um to patients right to people um dealing with certain things you know and then and not making it making it a thing that's like rooted in like shame you know so mm -hmm. yeah there's a couple reasons yeah. why it's so so thoroughly rejected because like you said yeah the the, the, the wording of it is like most people when the, the, the that um that suffix affilia, most people, it's usually preceded by pedophilia, right? That's the one that's ever, that's so ingrained culturally. And so when you hear something that sounds like that, it's immediately like, that's, that's awful. And when it's, it's a shame because it's just, it's, 
Yeah, it's it's um it's a sexology terminology. And actually, if you break down like autogyn love of oneself as a woman, that's kind of poetic, you know. It's like it's not gross or shamey. It's kind of you know like that's, but but yeah, just the word itself. But the reason I think it's most fervently rejected is because it does rely on the person experience it being their actual sex, and that's what they reject, right? It's like to be autoandrophilic, you have to acknowledge. Well, sorry, to be autogynophilic, the one that we actually for the most part, no exists. The other one is, you know, we're, you know, sexologists don't, 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 don't recognize its existence. I disagree with them on that, but that's a topic for another day. But like the um, autogynophilia, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a male's propensity to want to be a woman, right? And so it relies, the very foundation is this is a, a male experience and that's what they're uh, so fervently rejecting. Um, and they'll 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 say it. It's like, oh, well, I reject it because it basically rests on the premise that I'm male and I'm not, you know. And that's um, yeah. So it's two reasons yeah. why it's so yeah. And not only male, but but a male with with a fetish. I mean that people frame it as well. This is just a fetish, and and I think people I think that reduces down the concept. It's a difficult concept. I've tried really hard to understand it and what and try to empathize and understand what that would be like to experience, but. To reduce it down to it's just a fetish. I mean, that just makes it sound like it's all about it's all about arousal, and and I think I think that's also a barrier in people, you know, identifying that in themselves. They think, well, I'm not just I'm not just some sicko that that gets turned on all the time, and and you know, because I think of fetish as I don't know bondage gear or licking shoes or something, right? They they don't think of, it's. Yeah. It's far, I think it's so much more complex than that. And the experience of it is, is far um, deeper and probably subconscious and, and complex that it, that framing really prevents people from seeing that, okay, well, that actually, that concept actually does explain what I'm, what I'm experiencing and, and the full range and depth of that experience. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree, right? Because I don't know if fetishes or, you know, with like autogynephilia, autoandrophilia, it's it's something where it's like, I guess people have like shifts, you know, and, uh, but it's generally, it's something that is retained like more consistently than like a fetish, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know, I feel like fetishes are something that people can like um, maybe control in a particular way or just i'm not sure i don't know um but yeah it's hard to articulate the difference isn't it but it's yeah there's something there's something about it that that is different right if um i think i think think what it is 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 it's it's kind of with with a paraphilia maybe not a paraphilia so i have a hard time thinking of autogynophilia i feel like maybe we're making a categorical error because it seems so much more like a sexual orientation because it's it's so rooted in the person's sense of self like their entire self-perception um is is based in this in this sexual collectivity whatever um uh and it's so 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 like a fetish is more like okay you know somebody's being turned on by spanking or whatever it's like that's a, a kind of mild one but that's like that's a fetish that has nothing to do with their sense of self or how they move through the world or identity identify whereas like like uh having an auto sexuality is good it's it's entirely it's it's kind of your entire personhood i mean not to make it like that i don't know but I don't know how else to put it, other you know, because it's like it's not something that you can just just separate to the the act of sex, right? It's it's in kind of all encompassing, which is very different than than a fetish would be. And yeah, and I think one of the differences too between a sexual orientation, as you say, and and just a a thing or an activity that you're that turns you on is the degree to which it influences your social behavior as well. I think you know a lot of people thought of kind of affiliate it. I think it they have a compulsion to um to live that out in the world and and interact with others and you know it, so it influences social behavior in a way that you know if like to use your example Aaron to just like like being spanked I mean you can contain that action to a relationship or in private or in the bedroom but when some when something is a whole orientation and I would include heterosexuality and homosexuality in that it's a it's a it's a it interacts with your personhood to the degree that you want to express it to other people. Exactly. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I agree with that, you know, um, 
and, and one thing that I, I think is um is interesting and, and I want to know more about is like the onset of um autogynophilia and autoandrophilia in, in terms of so I, there's people who have you know um like early onset like gender incongruence right like when I was a kid I didn't I was like not sexually attracted to like anyone you know and even when I was like middle school teenage like I I, I didn't really have that to myself you know like I that just wasn't a part of me um and Yeah, I know. I think with people who have like autoandrophilia, it's more like um, it's less erotic in certain ways potentially, and it's more um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, maybe not like em empathetic, sympathetic. I I'm, I'm not sure. I'm trying to. to I, so so I talked about in other episodes is I feel like um you know, my, my experience of gender dysphoria is probably rooted in what, what is autoandrophilia. I don't have another way to explain it, but the way that I would say what you're saying is it's, it was much more sentimental than, um, than erotic, um, is, is how it was experienced for me. If, again, if this is a thing, you know, it's, it's very much more, um, yeah, kind of identifying with boys and men and I didn't make the same kind of categorical error that it, it sounds like you, when you were quite young, you were making the same kind of categorical error, error that Aaron did, where it's like, I'm, what do you mean I'm supposed to be in the girl category? I'm supposed to be in the boy category. Like you, it was like, it was a subconscious. And, um, and it sounds like it even extended into when you were approaching puberty, uh, which is pretty, that's pretty ingrained, right? If you know, like that, um, uh, so, so I had, <laughs> I'm real. So, so some of my earliest memories are um, my most kind of, kind of semi-traumatic memories. Was I was would uh, sneak into my brother's dresser. <laughs> Sounds like such a such a typical like autogynophilic story, but it obviously nothing <laughs> sexual, nothing sexual whatsoever. It's just like I grew up in a very conservative Christian home, and I wanted to wear the boys' clothes, but I wasn't allowed to. So it's like the sneaky thing that I did was go and go and steal my brother's clothes. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's absolutely nothing sexual about it, and even even. Um, as I um, grew older and I started to confuse the feelings of attraction and also like you, I didn't experience aloe sexual, like any sexuality until late teenage years. Um, uh, but, um, and then when I did, it was, it was, it was always confusing uh, attraction and envy. There was no distinction between those two things. Um, I'm not sure if that's anything you can, you can relate to as well, but um, it was, it, it, so it wasn't, it wasn't like I was ever turned on by the idea of being a man. It was just like, it seemed absolutely necessary, I guess. Um, I don't know how else to, to describe it. Yeah. But, well, what you mentioned, the whole attraction slash envy thing is, is definitely um, a relatable experience, you know, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't, I don't know what it is. It, it's, it never was like, um, like a really mean spirited thing, but it was like, oh my gosh, like I should like be like that. Like why, you know, it's, it's just really weird, um, especially as a child. Um, and then also, you know, the whole thing of like going into my dad's closet and my brother's closet and taking their clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and then taking them, taking my brother's shopping and being like, you should wear this. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you're living vicariously <laughs> yeah so uh, it was you know like that definitely definitely relatable stuff um but yeah it's 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 so interesting um to me because I would definitely consider myself someone who like later on in my life like currently I can see that there are aspects of like autoandrophilia right within my own like behavior um, uh, which I'm not going to get into like too much, but it's, it's something that, uh, I think is like, if, because autogynophilia is more so talked about like males, right. But autoandrophilia is like, I don't know. I've, I've ran into people and I'm like, wow, you're more than like, I'm more than sure you're autoandrophilic. Like I could like feel it. You know what I mean? Uh, there's something about that. And, and I could see it in myself. Um, and, uh, I, I think there's even more taboo and shame than like autogynophilia really um i think so i think because it's just 
I don't know. I, I looked online, for instance, like there's all sorts of like AGP communities and, you know, people like sharing information and then auto androphilia. It just it seems like it's um, something that I don't know if it's it's because it's just like rarer or um, which I personally I, I don't know if that's the case, but um, it's just not talked about as much like it's hard to define more information about it in the sense in the way that like it's easy to find stuff about AGP and maybe also never, really been never, my experience, but yeah. maybe you guys have a different experience so well it's never been researched and established in the literature either so I think I mean as much as as trans women reject the idea there are some I mean because that at least that diagnosis has been established some have been able to access that information and and then discover that that applies to them. Whereas I don't think women are afforded that opportunity because it's never been studied. It's never been established as a diagnosis. And so there's really nowhere you're going to stumble upon that information and, and identify it as, oh, well, that, that's, that kind of fits with my experience. Right, right, definitely. Women in general are understudied. It's just sort of assumed that every every study that applies to men also applies to women. I think, I mean, I think that was the mistake made as far as even the homosexual cohorts that the the gay men that were transitioning, I mean, they were fairly well studied. And I think it was just assumed that all the butch lesbians also fit into whatever was true about the gay men was also true about the lesbians. And And I don't think that's a fair conclusion to draw and it really does need to be studied. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And yeah, and I think I think there's a, another. So, yeah, that, 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 that doesn't exist literally like it, in, it's never been studied. It's never been an established um, pattern in sexology. Um, but so that's one reason. Another reason is, I think, for autogynophiles, the feeling is so powerful and so obvious. It's kind of hard to ignore. I mean, obviously, the people who don't want to accept it say, oh, I get turned on by this because I'm supposed to be a woman and this is normal female sexuality. It's like, like they talk themselves around it, but they know very well what's happening, right? Whereas it's not, it's going to be much, much more subtle and less apparent, you know, to the person experiencing autoandrophilia than it would be to the person experiencing autogynophilia. It's going to be much more, it's like, I, I've been studying this for what, like, I guess in earnest, you know, three years, so years now. And, um, and it took me until a few months ago to be like, I think, I think that is what I experience, you know, and I was, I was having a completely open mind to it the entire time as well. So it's not because it's just so I think because of another part of that is my allo external gynophilia is so so very much real that it, it that was another part where I was like I can't really confirm that this explains um, my my dysphoria, um, uh, so that's another kind of element to it. But then if you look, if you just like kind of spend time in FTM communities um, online, there's a lot of what we could easily categorize as autoandrophilia being discussed there. They just don't know what that word is. They don't, you know, um, and I think, and that to me, it seems obvious that the butch lesbians who transitioned and then started dating, sleeping with men, you know, being androphilic externally, that to me, it's like, I, I don't have another way to explain that besides autoandrophilia, that they had uh, internalized an idea of themselves as male, and the way to express that was to date women, and then when, you know, they could externalize them being male by the testosterone and whatnot, then they could act on their actual uh, androphilia, is my my theory on on, on that phenomenon. Um, but again, the, gyne or the gynecologists, the sexologists just say, no, women don't have paraphilias, and it's like, Okay, well then, what's going on? You tell me. <laughs> which, which I think furthers your thought that maybe this isn't a paraphilia, right? Maybe right. then, an in, right. maybe an inversion of a sexuality is different than a target location error. That's my hunch. Yeah, I, I think another part of it is too is like with autogynephilia, like um, a male dressing in like feminine clothing is very like, visually obvious, right? Mm -hmm. Um, just due to like design realities, right? So the way that clothing is designed for females is significantly different than for males, um, which I think is kind of stupid. Um, <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, it's 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 easier to see. And then if 
for people who have autoendrophilia, I think it's easier to get away with it without being very um, obvious. You know what I mean? In like a public setting. And that's mm -hmm. one thing that isn't really recognized, you know, but I think it is, it is a prominent thing. So. Mm -hmm. so you ultimately decided not to medicalize. And so how, how have things been for you since then? How are you managing it? And does it, does the idea of medicalization never still come up for you? Or do you feel like that's, you've kind of thought that through and they felt like that just wasn't going to be helpful for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I've definitely had instances where I have gone back and thought about it, you know, where I've been like, you know what, this was helpful to me to a certain extent. Um, there's different variables that I've, I've taken under consideration, um, which is, I would say I... I think I want to get a more compre com comprehensive understanding as to, to what I have on like a clinical level, you know, uh, especially being someone who has had this since childhood and really, you know, like I, I got into my teens and I was like, oh, I'm a female. Like I had to like make myself aware of that, even though obviously I was aware of my body, but processes like this um, make me very curious. And so I want to get as much information as possible at this point in time. So the way I'm, I'm really, I'm navigating gender dysphoria, gender incongruence is um, first and foremost, uh, trying to get some medical answers and seeing if there's maybe something behind certain things. So it's, there's evidence that there's like conditions, like intersex conditions, that there's hormonal imbalances, et cetera, et cetera, um, genetic realities that may contribute to um, situations like my own. So I'm curious about that. Um, I know if I were to like go on hormones, that might, I don't know. I, I don't know what that would do. So I, I just, I wanna get uh, the most comprehensive answer possible in a particular timeframe um, and uh, just get a really clear understanding as to what it's like to um, be really open about my reality, you know, um, and, and not medicalize, you know? So for me, that's that's mental health care, taking care of my mental health and and, um, and making sure I talk about everything that I experience with someone who has, it's, it's hard to find people who have experience with like uh, gender dysphoric patients, but don't press like either gender affirming care or um, like conversion therapy stuff. So it's a really weird kind of, world that we live in in that sense so yeah leaning into mental health care is is big for me um and just seeing where it goes from there you know just just taking things day by day so the I way mean, i dress honestly oh, go the on. way i dress and present in the world it's like it's not really i mean there's differences from like when i was like on on t you know and you know doing hrt and so forth um but besides that i'm just you know, there are days that are harder than others. There's like weeks that are harder than others where I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is just insane, you know, um, because my whole body feels different and, and so forth. And I'm just like, wow, this is weird. People don't have this, <laughs> but people do, you know, um, and just being like, all right, I'll, I'll see where it goes, goes from here. So that's, that's kind of my approach. Are you aware of the 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 Geta therapy uh, network at all, um, Aaron? You might know more about this, but I know I think it was Genspec who put together, or if Geta is independent, I'm not sure. Um, but basically, just a um, a network of of therapists who are um, gender exploratory, right? Um, I wonder if anybody in that in the, if you, if you're aware of any of those therapists, and I'm wondering also if any of them are actually that informed on the various types of gender dysphoria. And I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm starting to wonder about that because I know their whole position is not pushing affirmation and medicalization, but I'm wondering if they actually you know what if if they have solid alternatives, solid understandings of the experience of dysphoria. And um, yeah, I'm curious about that actually. Yeah, I've I've looked into it. I've okay. I've done some uh, research into like different modalities. So I'm I'm very interested in pursuing that. Um, I've been pursuing kind of like a standard like CBT kind of oriented therapy, um, but obviously there's some things that have to be looked at differently. I think with a, with a clinician with someone like myself. Um, so I'm definitely I'm definitely interested in, in doing uh, 
things like that right now, for sure. Other than, than your own internal struggle, which we all tend to experience, would you say that your, your incongruence is causing problems for you in other domains of your life, like relationships or your your ability to, to work and go to school or, or fun, just function in day-to-day life? Yes, I would generally, yes, it does It does that. I think it was more prominent um, when I was really buying into um, like popular narratives about being trans. That's when it was a real struggle. Um, and it, it interfered with my work life, interfered with my you know personal relationships and everything. Um, and so that heightened my my gender dysphoria uh, indefinitely. I think um, today in particular, it's something where I can recognize what's going on and I can be like, okay, this is what I am. This, this happens. And um, I, I try to use my feelings of gender incongruence to my advantage, uh, which might sound kind of uh, weird, but um, like, for instance, I, I work in the arts. I, I work in arts education currently, and um, I'm also doing like a, a part-time thing in the military. So it's like, I, I try to to kind of use some of the feelings that I have in, the, in my relationship with my body in order to um, help me do better occupationally. So. Give an example of that. I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Yeah, I know that's, that's a really kind of vague thing to say. Um, uh, so for instance, when I was um, in training, in, in military training, um, I have, it's it's gender incongruence and also just a sense of like body dysmorphia, I think that kind of trickles into that, that I have um, and just kind of accepting, um, like there's, there's certain moments during the month where I just, I feel more dysphoric than other times. And I, I do get, I become more and more energetic and, and so forth and uh, just more intense. I get really intense. Um, and I kind of leaned into that, you know, and um, you know, when I had to do things in training, I kind of exploited that and was like, this is okay. You know, this is not a bad thing. This is something that I can use in this context. You know, that makes sense. Okay. Does, does that make a little bit of sense? That does make yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm wondering, do you experience that? Um, uh, this, this is something that uh, uh, Phil Ilya, repeat guest, and I'm sure you're you're familiar with Phil as well. But uh, um, in his in his uh, research on uh, autogynephilia and autoandrophilia, he he believes that there's this kind of kind of a psychic shift that can happen for some people, where it's almost like they're they're you know embodying or like they're in their mind it's like like there's again he says it calls it a psychic shift where it's like you've got a kind of like a male kind of personality versus a female personality i'm not really sure if i'm explaining this properly it's something i don't experience so i don't fully understand it um but i'm wondering if you have if, if that's kind of what you're what you're experiencing yeah i i think um yeah i think it's something that's like it's for me, it feels like a, like a physiological, like subconscious thing that starts to like occur. And then, um, I can lean into it or not lean into it. So I think that kind of describes my, my shift. So I definitely believe there are people, I don't think maybe all people that have gender incongruence or dysphoria experience this, as you've said, it's something that, um, you feel like you don't relate to, but I, I think it's real for some people. Um, and I definitely, that's something that I'm trying to lean into, um, and see it's like, you know, it's, I think it's a positive quality to the, the gender incongruence and just seeing what I can, what I can do with that, you know, um, even though it's not consistent. Right. Um, well, anything else we go over? Um, yeah, I think honestly, that's in terms of my, my gender dysphoria experience, that's, that's essentially it. You know, I'm, I'm someone, I, I've had it since since childhood. I'm really interested in, in knowing more about it and uh, and treating it in, in alternate uh, modalities. So, yeah, it sounds like you have an incredibly uh, introspective uh, and just really thorough understanding of what you're experiencing in a way that that yeah, most people who don't just don't probably don't understand it as well, but mostly don't care to understand it as well. So it's really kind of inspiring uh, to kind of hear how how like thoroughly you're you're investigating this and. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's people... plus, 
Sorry, well, I think there's plus and minuses to it, you know, when, when people do a lot of investigation on like um, on their own, you know, into, into gender dysphoria, you know, there's definitely benefits to being like, okay, this is the situation and just, you know, transitioning and, and following through on a, like a full transition. Uh, I think there's, that can, you know, be good if it's done right, right, with the right support, the right like endos and the right, you know, general like community support. But there's also, I don't know, there's, there's so many ways to, to go about it. One thing, one thing I wanted to kind of dive into a little bit before we let you go is you. So, so you, the the, the kind of let's go back to the the AGP dichotomy here, the AGP HSTS male dichotomy, um, and it, they they say that that uh, like little boys who are dysphoric, the AGP ones pray that they were girls. The HST ones think that they're girls. Like it's not something that they hope for or wish for. It's just a like an error that they're making. Um, I was definitely of the kind of, I knew I was a girl. I just wished I was a boy. I thought that there was a mistake that was made. I like, I wanted nothing more than to just be a boy, even though I was fully aware of the fact that I was a girl. Um, so that very much aligns with the kind of, um, uh, yeah, the, 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 the AGP side. Right. Um, and then Aaron, you were, um, you know, kind of the, the, the classic female HSTS, you made the categorical error of not like, oh, I wish I was a boy, but literally thinking that you were. And Anna, it sounds like you were doing the exact same thing of, it sounds like you have the, um, uh, and again, uh, these, I don't think that these dichotomies are necessarily entirely accurate. And then they certainly don't directly correlate to the female version of this, but it is quite interesting that you had that kind of uh, quintessential uh, HSTS dysphoria uh, experience where, and I use that acronym, homosexual transsexual uh, experience of of making that categorical error. Um, and yet you grew up to be uh, entirely androphilic. Is that is that correct? Um, yes. I think that probably... I describe myself so sexually, I describe myself as a bisexual, if that kind of helps. But yeah, I think androphilic is is something I do identify with to to a certain extent, you know, but the the whole um, scenario of identifying as a boy just automatically from childhood is, is, is such a real part of my experience. You know, I just I, you know, when I got older, I was like, I just I wish to, to feel normal. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, um, I don't know. It, it was it was interesting. I definitely identify with the whole like being a boy thing. All right. Anything else well, you wanted to go over? Uh, I, I think that's it. That was. Thank you so much for for having me and and for us, you know, discussing this this interesting topic of, of gender dysphoria and congruence and so forth. So I, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much for being I, here. It's yeah, I appreciated you sharing your story and you articulate it so well. So I think it'll be very helpful for other people to hear it. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.